All right, it's my first podcast of the summer in LA, and it's going to be a short one. Just kidding. Just did that for Sislowski. <laughs> he doesn't like it when I say it's going to be a short one. And usually it's not a short one, but this one I actually don't really have a time deadline. It's early in the morning. Actually, it's almost nine, but uh, my family's still asleep. I went out, grocery store, got sparkling water, coffee, bacon and eggs. So I've already been up. It's weird because I was jet lagged, obviously, from Portugal to L.A. Uh, and that first day I got up at 3.45 a.m. And then I started getting up around 6, 6.30. And I basically just kind of leaned into the jet lag to go to sleep at like 9.30, 10 and get up early. And I like it. I should be doing this in my regular life. Normally I go to bed at like 12 or 1. And then I wake up at like 7 when Sasha and Heather get up 7.30. And then I'm tired. I have the luxury of getting a nap often during the middle of the day, but then it's harder to sleep again. And it's not really how you want to live your life as much. I mean, it's nice to be able to take a nap. Sometimes you need it. It feels good. But um, the adult way, which I still at 52 haven't gotten into yet, is go to bed like 9, 30, 10, get up at 6, and have a good night's sleep, have time in the morning, get sort of that morning uh, sunlight, which uh, – telling you i'm following this guy uh jack cruz he's a brain surgeon he's a little bit of a, a crank i mean he's, he seems kind of crazy literally on twitter he seems a little bit crazy but um i think he's onto some things and so um, one of them is to get up early before you look at any blue light uh, and get your eyes outside get outside i'm probably not doing it justice a lot of the stuff he does is behind the paywall which i haven't done yet but it seems like that's one of the common things is to get up early and get the natural light in your eyes before you stare at a screen kind of signals to your body to wake up. But anyway, I like it. I think part of the problem with, with staying up late and why I used to like to do it. I know Heather is definitely likes to stay up late is that you, you basically, you know, put your kid to bed. There's no one else emailing you, bothering you. Um, I guess in Portugal, they're still emailing you because it's daytime in in the States, but you have all this time to yourself at night. And so you're cutting into your sleep, but you're like, yeah, but I don't want to go to sleep because I have this time to myself. I can do anything I want. No obligations, nowhere to go, nowhere to be, nobody to take care of. Uh, but then you just get in the cycle where you're tired. So I'm going to try to flip it. I'm not saying I'm going to succeed, but uh, so far, so good. So the jet lag has been uh, good. It's kind of weird being in LA. I'm out in the valley where we did like a house swap with a friend of a friend. And uh, the house is pretty nice. I mean, it's it's in the valley. It's There's really, you can't walk to anything. We're in this hill and it's all like alarm security. I set off the alarm a couple of days ago, woke everyone up uh, 6.30 a.m. because there was like an outer alarm and an inner alarm and I got it confused and the, it was very loud. There was no SWAT team though. I was worried that like a SWAT team was going to come and shoot me. But it's a pretty nice house. The kitchen is really good. The dude, the husband is like a serious cook and uh, it's like a pleasure cooking in a real kitchen unlike our place in Portugal. I'm a cook. I don't know if I'm serious. I'm, I'm pretty good, but I, I don't like, I don't do recipes. I just kind of make up my own stuff, but I just improvise. But the kitchen in Portugal sucks that we have. And if we ever get these houses built, we're going to build a kitchen like this with a big center island and a, you know, six burner, eight burner stove. It's hard to get gas there, but it's just such a pleasure cooking in this kitchen. And so this place is pretty nice. Uh, the location's bad. We're always driving from the valley back into town. Um, and we'll see now that 4th of July week is kind of behind us, like how bad the traffic really is. 
and it's not been great, but it's it's been tolerable so far. But it's weird going to L.A. When I used to live in L.A., I went to Vegas a lot for work and for just other people having parties and stuff. Probably like three, three, four times a year for like 15 years. I've been to Vegas a lot. Whenever I go to Vegas, you know, you get there and you'd be like, ah, fuck it. I'll just spend 30 bucks on a cigar and 20 bucks on a drink. And I'll go to this restaurant. It's 150 bucks each tip. And you're like, yeah, it's only a couple of days in Vegas, you know, and and lose money in poker. You know, I used to play poker and I didn't want to sit there all day. You know, who wants to like grind poker for Jeff Erickson does actually, but who, what normal person wants to grind poker for like 48 hours when you're in Vegas, you know, you want to play for a few hours, have some fun. And so I'd sit there and obviously if you're playing poker, most of the time, the best thing to do is fold. And so then I'd be sitting there, fold, 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 just bored. And then the drink waitress would come around and I'd be like, yeah, give me one of these, give me a Grey Goose Martini, olives, rocks. And I'd be like, that would be 20 bucks. So I just made 20 bucks there. But then after like the second, the first one was sometimes good. You know, you'd be a little loose. But the second one, and especially the third, and if I ever did a fourth, oh man, I was just like, I may as well just light the money on fire right there because I would just be, you start to see some possibilities. Oh, I made middle pair on the flop. I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise this guy's soft. He's gonna fold. And of course, the guy has the nuts or whatever. You know, I the one good thing about me with gambling is I'm kind of a nutless monkey with it. I I'll lose 500, 600. And that's it. And even though, even when we started making a little bit more money at RotoWire, I still kind of five, six hundred. That was it. I was done. So uh, I never lost, you know, a thousand. I never lost five thousand like people do. I couldn't take it. You know, I was just it would be too. I'd be too despondent if I did that. I was already pissed when I would lose five hundred. So um, that was about the worst idea. But yeah, the the poker one drink is okay, but man, it was bad. So those martinis, you know, so I drink four martinis. Four is probably my record at the poker table. Maybe two, so forty bucks worth of alcohol, and five hundred for five hundred bucks. So each of those martinis was like two fifty. Turned out. Anyway, though, I used to go to Vegas, and um, and as I said, when I got there, like I would just shit was so expensive, but you just pay it because you're like, ah, I'm in Vegas. Fuck it, it's a couple days. And now the U.S. is basically Vegas to me because Portugal is so much cheaper. And the, oh, and the other thing about Vegas is that everything is, you know, you have everything at your fingertips. So you want sushi, you want Chinese, you want Thai, you want Mexican. It's all there. You want a steakhouse, you want a cigar. It's all there. Now you can get weed. Not when I was going there mostly, but everything was just, you know, you want something, you can have it immediately. But that's how I feel LA is compared to Portugal. Like I go here and, you know, we go to Whole Foods and it's like oh, all the, the beef jerky that I like. You can't get that in Portugal. Uh, I just bought uh, a pint of raw cream. This is, you know, superfood, delicious. You, you can only really put it in iced coffee because if you put it in hot coffee, you're going to kill all the enzymes that made it worth it. But the, the raw cream, a pint, 16 bucks at Erwan. Erwan is like the, Erwan is stupidly expensive, but I just went there because I wanted, I was like, I bet they have raw milk and raw cream. I got the milk for Sasha. But like, you know, the, you go to the farmer's market in LA, they've got these giant black mulberries. They've got, different color mulberries they got the black raspberries they got wild salmon i'm getting coconut water i mean the shit you just don't get in portugal even at the organic markets that you know we go to in portugal it just doesn't have this kind of shit that la has i mean it's vegas and it's ridiculously expensive i just bought a bag of groceries at erwan and it was like 88 bucks 
And, you know, in, in Portugal, you get three or four bags for 88 bucks. And it's or, I'm talking about the organic market, too, not the cheap Portugal market. I'm sure you get like eight bags for that. So it's uh, it's just Vegas. They, they do have everything. I mean, it's it is it is cool. You go to the States and just for breakfast, you know, you get a, you want to get a uh, brec- breakfast omelet with bacon and hash browns. It fills the entire plate. You're like, yeah, this is a real breakfast. Portugal, you get like a pastry, you know, which I don't even eat. But it's all right. I mean, I <laughs> the trade-off is worth it, in my opinion. I'd rather live in Portugal right now. But it is it is Vegas to me. And and spending money like Vegas, like, I try not to go out to eat that much. But even just going to the grocery store is ridiculous. Um, but it's it's fun. It's good to see you. The first week, I always am like, yeah, look at all the shit I can get. It's amazing. Especially if you're, like, healthy. Like, if you want to eat healthy, that's the thing. You, there's just good, healthy stuff. Like, I'm gluten-free, and it's hard to find... There is one brand of beer, the Spanish beer, Dora Dam, in uh, that I can get at one grocery store near me in Lisbon. But for the most part, like they don't give a fuck if you're gluten free. You know, there's a couple places that that cater to it, but mostly nobody cares. It's hard to get a beer. But here, there's like hard cider. There's like this vodka soda water. There's gluten free beer that's pretty good. It's just like endless options. You know, if you want to eat healthy, beef jerky whole thing so it's 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 cool so far but um, it's getting you know the traffic's getting a little annoying and la is just kind of an ugly city in general i feel like you know new york people were depressed they were just like there's everyone's smoking weed everywhere but it wasn't the subversive like smoke a j with your boys like you know cops are gonna get you now it's legal it just seemed like self-medication everyone's still shell-shocked they everyone's like oh we lost so many people in the pandemic i don't know i i'm still wearing a mask you know, I still don't go indoor restaurants or whatever. And I'm thinking, do you know anybody that died? And no one seems to know anybody. Or if they know somebody, it's like a friend of a friend or a cousin of a friend. I don't know. It's still very weird. But New York depressed the shit out of me. I just didn't feel like the there was any life in it. There are people going out and there were, you know, people at restaurants and stuff like that. It wasn't like that, but it was just the the energy just seemed kind of frightened. I don't think they had come to terms with what they allowed to have happen. And LA is a little bit different. LA, everyone just seems to be checked out. Like at least like all the rich people, a lot of whom we deal with, they just seem totally checked out. Like, like they're, they're worried about misinformation and, you know, whether Trump gets elected, just shit that's just like not even important. They don't, they still, they haven't come to terms either, but they're not like as panicked, I guess, because LA is so spread out and, and uh, didn't have like that, mass casualty uh, event in March, which I, if you if you follow uh, someone on Twitter, Jessica Hockett, she's starting to question whether that was just completely, the word is iatrogenic. Um, iatrogenic means the mortality was caused by the medical system, not by the virus, the excess mortality. Obviously, people were still dying of COVID. Or they were, you know, some people obviously died of COVID at the same rate everywhere else, but there was no real excess mortality because there was no flu. So... If you look around the country, except in like New York and Italy and a couple of places, you know, mostly it was just sort of like a flu season. But there was a huge excess mortality in New York, which is why I think it was so shell shocked. There were so many more people died. Although, again, like I don't really know. I don't know anybody and I'm from New York and I don't know. My family doesn't seem to know anybody who died of COVID. There's like a friend of a cousin or some rumor, but it's never like, oh, this person I knew I grew up with died. Like I just 
it's kind of weird, right? I mean, I'm not like I know everybody and I haven't been in New York in a long time, but it's weird. But her theory is that basically, you know, it was the ventilation and the lack of early treatment that killed all these people. Normally, if somebody had, you know, pneumonia after having the flu, they would get antibiotics. There was a certain protocol and most of those people would survive. But remember the whole uh, protocol with COVID is do nothing. Basically they told nothing works and we have to wait till the vaccine comes around. So New York, is like a weird mystery of why the death rate in New York was so much higher than everywhere else. But LA wasn't like that. So LA, they're just kind of checked out. It's very strange. They're all just sort of really, there's nobody coming to terms. It feels like at least among the people that, that I deal with, uh, with what happened that you were locked in your house and uh, this was mandated and you show your papers to uh, go into a restaurant. Nobody seems to have come to terms with that. They just seem to be like playing uh, wordle or, spelling bee or whatever the new game is there's some new games they've been playing so it's a bit it's a bit odd but i will say i was at the uh, beach club in la heather's dad's beach club and i was walking back to get my shoes that i left on the beach and i walked past these security guards and i overheard them talking about the spike protein right so the security knows right like these these working class guys know uh what's up and all these rich patrons at the club, they're oblivious. And this is a really weird information asymmetry because usually it's the educated people that know and the less educated people who are last to know. But this is totally the reverse. It's like the regular person on the street. I know people, I won't say where they're from, but friends of ours, totally clueless about all this shit. But their housekeeper, who we know, totally based, knows all the stuff. So it's just interesting that like the working class people are aware because they just have no incentive to believe the narrative. Whereas the people who have benefited from the narrative so much and from, you know, the, the people who push the narrative, they're just still all in. And it's just so bizarre. Uh, it's just a weird asymmetry where the average person is way, way ahead of the educated person. The educated person is being truly miseducated in this case. And they're being propagandized and they're easier to propagandize. But that, that brings me to, uh, I saw something on Twitter that was pretty crazy. So there was the whole, it's kind of a huge thing, uh, the Missouri versus Biden, the judge granted the injunction um, to stop the government and social media companies from censoring people. And the Biden administration appealed, and this will probably go to the Supreme Court, which is kind of dumb for them to appeal because I don't think, I think they'd rather it just be ruled in some uh, district court than not have it actually become the law of the land with the Supreme Court binding on every court. But regardless, uh, the New York Times and like NPR, National Public Radio's take on this case is just so crazy. It's so laughable. And the New York Times piece on it, and this was just a news piece. This wasn't an opinion piece. It was like sort of the, here's what happened and here's what to make of it. And they described the judge as promoting debunked claims. One of the claims that they cited in the Times article that they alleged was debunked was that the vaccine doesn't stop the spread. They said they were trying to act like, no, they've debunked this. And the judge actually cited this as a debunked claim that the vaccine doesn't stop the spread, doesn't prevent the spread. And this is the most Orwellian thing ever because everybody knows so many people who are vaccinated who got COVID. So it clearly does not prevent the spread. It just doesn't. It's just a fact. But they actually, in July of 2023, in the New York Times, tried to ding this judge for as using debunked information saying that the vaccine doesn't stop the spread, which is just plainly obvious. If you know, it's like contrast this, like I don't know anyone who died of COVID personally. I don't, 
I've heard friends of friends, people who know people, but like none of my childhood friends, none of Heather's friends, like we don't know people who died of COVID, right? So this is the thing like we don't, our eyes and ears are like, who, who did? Um, I know of one guy who, who I don't know personally who died um, after being vaccinated and ventilated a couple of years into it, but I don't know anybody personally who died of COVID. And so this is like, okay, well, how is this the pandemic that shut down society if I don't know anybody? But contrast that. Do I know anyone who was vaccinated and got COVID? Yes, I know tons of people who fit that description. So just using my eyes and ears, like which claim is obviously, you know, one of them is obviously true. And so, you know, the New York Times is in this, they're just like in this alternate reality where the, we're saying that the vaccine doesn't stop the spread is misinformation. They're still in that reality, even though reality, as anyone would conceive it, shows obviously it's it's otherwise and it's kind of like they these people they put all their chips in on one version of reality that the government's protecting us that the vaccine stops the spread that the side effects are rare that lockdowns are good you know that misinformation is a big problem that white supremacy is a big problem they've pushed their chips in on this there's a concept in poker called pot committed which is basically like you have so many of your chips, such a high percentage of your chips already in the pot that, you know, even if you can only beat a bluff, you kind of got a call all the way. Even if you don't have shit, even if the cards on the flop turn and river didn't work out for you, you know, you got a call, you got 90 out of a hundred dollars in the pot. You're going to call the last 10 just in case they're bluffing. Right. I mean, you just, you kind of have to, um, cause your pot committed you, to fold, you know, 90% of your chips, even if you have a, you know, 15% chance to win. It's, it's crazy. You're going to call your pot committed. And I feel like these people with this narrative, they're pot committed. They shunned relatives at Thanksgiving. They masked their kid. They gave an injection to their six-year-old. I mean, they, they're pot committed. It doesn't matter what the evidence is, the quality of the evidence, the amount of evidence. It can't sway them anymore. They just have one direction. It's deeper into the badness. We're all in. We don't care. So the, the New York Times and its readers, I, I think they're just pot committed to this narrative that the vaccine stops the spread, even though it plainly doesn't. So they can say in controversion of plain reality in front of everybody's eyes that this judge is falling for a debunked claim, even though we all know it's true. It's just a very bizarre state of affairs. But I think it's, it's like poker. It's like they're too emotionally and reputationally committed to this pot to fold. And there's only one way. It's all in. It's deeper into the madness, deeper and deeper into the madness. And you see, and hopefully, and I think it's really only like 20% or even fewer of the population who is, is in this, but that's, that's the New York Times readership mostly. And the rest of the readership, the ones who aren't pot committed, they were enough pot committed that it doesn't bother them yet. It doesn't bother them yet. It's going to start to bother them as they start to realize how much bullshit they've been reading. They're going to start to get angry. But you know, they, they'll tolerate that kind of just blatant falsehood, um, whereas a lot of the readers, I think they just, you know, they're just all in on it. And, and this is another example of this. I was listening to KCRW, which is, you know, uh, and they carry uh, neoliberal propaganda radio, NPR, or is it neoliberal panic radio? Everything's panic. It's like, oh, my God. I, I really I, I talked about this last year on the podcast. So that's on L.A. When I listen to NPR, it really helps me if in my mind to think, oh, my God. Oh my God, to everything they say. It's like, that's what they're trying to, that's the reaction they're trying to elicit in their uh, typical audience member. But anyway, so I'm, I'm listening to this shit and there's this, some guy, he sounds like he's about 25 and he's, 
he's trying to explain the Missouri versus Biden ruling. And he's he starts by justifying the censorship um, from the government. He's like, you know, it really started and ramped up in, in 2016 when there was a lot of Russian disinformation about the election. So he's still basically he's really he's pushing this Russian disinformation angle, which <laughs> I think even Nate Silver said the Russian dis, the Russian disinformation angle. They spent a few thousand on Facebook wasn't even in the top 100 reasons Trump won. And they're pushing this. And, and he's talking about this as like, OK, that's that's what justified originally s- surveilling social media and starting to influence the uh, social media tech companies. And then he starts talking about misinformation about covid as to the covid origins, as though, again, like there was, you know, remember the, the lab leak was a conspiracy theory. Now everyone knows it was a lab leak. And he's still just saying that there was misinformation around the origins even though the misinformation was that that was an unfounded conspiracy theory, you know, that actually that was always plausible. And the Freedom of Information Act emails from Fauci and, and others show that they also suspected it was a lab leak. So this guy's just basically, again, just like the New York Times, in an alternate reality, talking to people who prefer to reside in that alternate reality and pot committed, just people who just it doesn't really matter to them what's been shown, what's come out. It's, it's irrelevant. And it's that Yuri Bezmenov, that great quote where he says to the demoralized person, there's no amount of evidence you could show them. You could bring them to the concentration camps in the Soviet union. You could give them absolutely unfalsifiable document, documentary evidence of what's happened. And they still will not let go of their beliefs. He says, until the military boot crashes their balls, he says, until the military boot, kicks them in their fat bottom will they realize that they have been misled deceived and also self-deceiving so that's just a portion of the population and i don't i don't know it's a bit scary I, i've also talked about this australian guy who has this awesome clip i should try to link to it but i think twitter is not letting me link externally but this this guy was talking about how you know when people get red pilled you know we he was saying he'd been red pilled for 20 years. And for me, the Iraq war was the first thing that kind of radicalized me in terms of not believing what the government was saying. And then the disappointment of Obama cemented that. And then, you know, on and on COVID just blew it open. And so, you know, it was shocking even for me in COVID, I, I believed for eight months or so. And, and so I'm, you know, okay, I'm used to it. Like there's almost nothing that could come out that our government's done or that our media is lying about that would really shock me. I mean, it still does shock me. I have to say some of the stuff I, I still am naively like, really, how could you lie so blatantly? But I know now and I can deal with it. It's not going to like mess me up that much to, to find out stuff. I mean, it does mess me up. It makes me angry, but I, I st- I'm still naive. I'm still like, well, people really lie that blatantly they're or they're that craven that they'll just believe a narrative for professional and social convenience, even though it's so obviously a lie. And even though it's so obviously harmful to other people, I, I am a bit naive still. And so I, I'm not, I guess it may be entirely red pilled or maybe it's black pilled, they say, but in any event, this guy say, you know, like he's been red pilled for 20 years, but he's like, when these fuckers wake up and realize what's been done to them and how, thoroughly they've been deceived he's like they are going to fucking freak they're going to fucking flip and he's like and you're going to want to distance yourself from that (laughs) you're going to not want to be around that it's not going to be a pleasant thing you're going to want to distance yourself so i don't know what's going to happen to those people and i i you know 
they're, you know, I, I feel bad for them. I mean, it's, you know, they were deceived, they were lied to and they were trusting and they, but there is a choice at some point. I think, I think human beings have a responsibility, have agency to say, you know what, I'm not going to just outsource my judgment, my evaluation, my perception to somebody else. Like I'm an adult. I'm going to take charge of my own reality and I'll make mistakes, but I'm not going to be so cowardly as to outsource my basic humanity, you know, my basic sense-making to the New York fucking times or whatever the guy in TV saying, or government officials to just take that responsibility. And I know, you know, with Bitcoin, it's like very scary to be responsible for your own money. The, the bank's not going to, there's no bank to bail you out. If you fuck up a transaction, it's just gone. And it's kind of stressful. You know, it's like, even when I uh, opened my own Ameritrade account, like, I don't know, 30 years ago, and I was like, wait, I'm in charge of this money. It wasn't much money, but I was in charge of it. It was kind of scary. Like, wait, aren't you supposed to have a stockbroker like doing this? Like, I'm just going to buy the stocks and pick them or whatever. And I'm just going to, this is a lot of money. You know, as you started getting some savings, you're like, this is a lot of money. I wouldn't go to Vegas and be comfortable managing thousands of dollars on these different decisions that amount to bets, right? I wouldn't want to be doing that in Vegas. So why, and I wouldn't want to play poker for, you know, I don't know, 25, 50, no limit. I wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> so why am I doing at those stakes with stocks? But then you get used to it and you're like, look, nobody fucking knows. There's, there's ways to hedge risk and, and to be a little bit um, more, play a little defense and, and you learn, you learn some, I learned a couple expensive lessons, but then you're like, okay, I'm comfortable having my own stocks and Bitcoin, another one, like, oh shit, you know, I've got to learn how to custody this stuff and do it safely and not lose my keys. And it's stressful. And, and it's a, it's a responsibility. And I imagine people who had gold back in the day, like where to store it, how to hide it, you know, how to get it out without being spotted. I mean, there's all these kind of, you know, it's money, it's stored energy uh, and other people can, would value it. So a lot of things that you, that, you know, that, that you might want to outsource, you know, you, you, we outsource education. I don't love the school that Sasha goes to, but it, it's okay. It's, it's not, you know, I don't have, I, it was funny. I, all these parents started cracking up the other day because I was at this uh, birthday party and uh, they were talking about the school and complaining about it variously. And I was like, you know, I just really don't care about school. I don't, I don't care about the school really at all. And they all started laughing because they knew there's some truth in it um, that like, who gives a fuck about the school? Like I, I have low expectations for it. As long as she's like reasonably happy there and they're not indoctrinating her too hard it's sort of our responsibility to educate her and we're just storing her there to the day so we can do our thing. Um, and she can be around peers and play and, you know, be around her friends. And I just feel like that's the function of the school and we're okay with that, but there's no way I'm outsourcing her education. I'm certainly not outsourcing her uh, critical thinking. And, um, you know, I'm, I talk to her about stuff and, you know, we'll see. You just shouldn't outsource the core functions of being a parent. And it's tempting, right? We want to, but, these people have outsourced to, to the experts. Oh, uh, trust the experts, right? They've outsourced their basic sense-making function, their judgment uh, about life. And, you know, we, we have a constitution. We had very wise people who knew that freedom of speech was, was the most, it was the, it's literally the first amendment in the bill of rights. It's the most important right without which there's no freedom. And so they, they, they put the first amendment in there. They didn't say, well, the first amendment, applies but if there's misinformation you know we, ha we have to shut it down or if there's public good if it's for the greater good we can shut it down they knew that freedom of speech was the greatest public good that's why it's in the 
Constitution. That's why it's the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. It is the most important thing for the public good. So these utilitarians who think they can short-term override the First Amendment because, oh, well, this misinformation is harmful or, you know, this is for the greater good, they're, you know, they're extremely short-sighted. They don't understand that even if they were right and they've proven to be totally wrong, I mean, the things they were shutting down were actually true and the things they were espousing were false. So just, but that's not even the point. That doesn't even matter. I think you should assume what they were saying was true and assume the things they were shutting down were false and short-term harmful. The founders were smart enough and prescient enough to realize any short-term harms from misinformation or well, I think it's a bullshit term, wrong information, incorrect information were nothing compared to the destruction of a free society that would occur if freedom of speech was not enshrined clearly in the constitution of the country. And it's interesting, and I've mentioned this before, but when the president gets sworn in, he the oath he swears is not to defend the U.S. from foreign invaders or, or to defend the U.S. or to protect people or keep people safe. That's not the oath. The oath is to uphold and protect the constitution of the United States. And so I actually think Biden is in clear violation of the oath. If it can be shown that he signed off on any of these, and I mean, he's ultimately responsible, this, these First Amendment violations, I mean, I think that's impeachment. Forget about all the criminal stuff, the, all the information that's coming out about his dealings with this, his son. But I just think like he's violated that oath of protecting the Constitution if you know this case is upheld. I just think this is fundamental. I mean, he's he's... I don't know if he should be prosecuted, but he certainly should be impeached on that. It's not like a bullshit impeachment, like whether Trump paid Stormy Daniels or, I mean, Clinton, I thought was really just a sleazebag. But, you know, again, even that, you know, getting a blowjob from your 21-year-old intern as president um, and just the, what a poor example that is. And then he lied about it. That's why he got impeached. He didn't get impeached for the blowjob. He got impeached for the, the cover-up. But again, that was kind of thin, uh, in my opinion. I mean, I think he's a, a dirtbag, but that wasn't really the constitution violating offense. And, you know, she was of age and he shouldn't have lied about it, but lied for obvious reasons. It's shockingly embarrassing and shockingly poor behavior from somebody in that position. I used to say like, you know, everyone's like, dude, it's no big deal. It's a blow job. All these like people are just partisans. And even back then, and I, I voted for Clinton. I don't think I voted actually, but I would have voted for Clinton. And I was definitely considering myself a Democrat back then. But I remember saying, like, look, if you're like some dude who sells insurance and you like bang the 21 year old intern, like it's, it's sleazy, it's bad behavior. But like, OK, you're just some insurance salesman, like nobody gives a shit like what you do, really. I mean, maybe your kids do, but that's it. But if you're president of the States. I mean, man, you got to you got to have a higher standard of conduct than that. And people are like, oh, what's the big deal? I, I thought that was dumb. But again, that's not really the level of offense, you know, that we're talking about with Biden either, you know, that the the the. Uh, business dealings with foreign governments via his crackhead son, but especially violating the oath of the constitution. I think that's the most fundamental violation. I mean, you, you, you just cannot do that. You cannot police free speech. You got it. You swore an oath to uphold the constitution of the United States. And that's the very first amendment. That's the very first thing where it says the government cannot interfere here. And he did. All right. What else do I got here? All right, a couple of uh, interesting things. So, so one other thought I had, and this relates to sort of this alternate reality that a certain percentage of the population is in. I think there's like a real question about, I think it was Naval Ravikant who said, uh, if the news is fake, what about history? 
And so you start to think like, well, what all the shit we know about what happened, you know, in history and all the different wars and migrations and all these, you know, historical records that we think we have. I mean, if, if they lie to your face now about the news, what really happened in history? And, you know, the, there's a saying of sorts that the conquerors kind of write history, right? They make themselves into heroes and make the people they conquered into the, to the bad guys. And, and so we have this sort of version that sort of glorifies us in our history. And that's normal, right? I mean, you want to glorify your tribe, your tribe won, their tribe lost. And you make a history that sort of enforces the views of you and your tribe. But, you know, I'm obviously that's subject to major distortion, just as we see in the news when there's an incentive, they're going to distort it somehow uh, in their favor. And then the idea that so like, also, you know, the idea of like, well, once history has gone, once no one's alive anymore, you have written records, you know, obviously that are, that are historic and they kind of piece it together. And I'm sure a lot of that scholarship and the historians have done a good job. And I, I don't know which, but there's definitely also, you, you see even like scientific journals being bought and faked. I mean, could that not have happened with historians who are looking at documents from the day that were bought off, you know, that were highly, highly edited to reflect a certain view. So the historians, a good historian would obviously look at, you know, other material that kind of fell through the cracks that didn't get sanitized to the, um, to the whims of the conquerors, but, you know, it might be hard to find that stuff. And so the narratives that we know from history, I, I wonder, I wonder a lot about it now, but then it gets to even a deeper question, which is like history's gone. It doesn't really exist, right? It's just a concept in our minds. And we know that people existed before us, whereas, you know, we're not, it's, it's like creationism, right? Did the world start 6,000 years ago with Adam and Eve, or did it start billions of years ago with the big bang? And I think most of us think it started with the big bang, but regardless of what story you tell yourself, you know, all of that's just concepts, right? Like you're just here in the present observing what you're observing and history is just sort of history. And, and you, and you can conceptualize it however you want. If you want to conceptualize it as 6,000 years or, billions of years. These are just propositions, little neurochemicals in your brain giving you a sort of, you know, it's not, it's not like you have access to it firsthand and it's not like it really matters in terms of, you know, what's going on in front of your face, you know, what story you tell yourself. It's a story, right? Even if one story is based in scientific record, the other one is more of just sort of a narrative or a myth. Whether you tell yourself a myth to explain history, you tell yourself uh, a narrative that's the best we can do for now because you know, scientific narratives change too. It's, it's not like, you know, at least the creation myth is still there. You know, it's going to stay the same, but the science is, you know, at one point we thought the the, earth, the uh, sun revolved around the earth. And at one point people thought the earth was flat. And so, you know, you, you have these science keeps changing and the, the understanding we have now of the big bang may change. It may not be exactly that it may not have happened quite that way or maybe a very small part of it or there may be another factor that we just don't even know about until we get to another level of understanding that opens some doors which is what keeps happening you know relativity you know einstein's relativity opened a lot of doors to explain phenomena in the universe and there may be 10 more discoveries of that magnitude or more that change everything about what we think but then even on a deeper level than that it's like well you know, did things even happen? You know, it's if a tree falls in the forest and there was no, you know, no one there to hear it, did it make a sound? And there's, you know, that sort of question of like, well, 
and, and I'm, I guess what I'm getting to is like, if you get enough people to believe your alternate reality, does that not become the reality? Does history not become what the victors have written? Like we have, we all have an image of history. It's not exactly the same, but you know, there's, there's some overlapping commonalities about what happened, you know, and the Roman empire and dark ages and middle ages, the enlightenment, you know, all the shit. And that stuff is shared based on what people a long time ago wrote down or interpreted of what the people wrote down. And is that, you know, is that just a story, just a narrative, a myth, just like the creation myth? You know, I mean, it's, oh, well, that one's based on evidence. There's evidence for that. There's evidence, but it's evidence left by people who obviously at their time had an interest in spinning lots of different things. Well, the historians are professionals. They look for other things to, to contradict it. But again, we, even now we can't even get the science right. You know, the scientific journals are making errors in real time in 2023, in 2022, 2021. There were people pu publishing papers that, you know, have now turned out to be totally false about COVID. And so I don't know. I was just sort of a, uh, a deeper thing of, you know, I I'm sort of like a, it's probably like a philosophical name for this, but I'm a person who really, is a stickler for the facts. Like something happened. You, you and I may disagree about it. You may think one thing happened. I may think we could both be wrong or I could be dead right or you could be dead right. But there is a factual thing that happened. That's sort of how I see the world. Like uh, I'll give you a, a crazy example, but Heather and I, this drives me crazy. I probably shouldn't even talk about this, but I was uh, in 2016. Um, it was Heather's mom's 70th birthday. And for to celebrate, she, she rented this place in Cabo, Mexico. And I didn't know if I could go because she's her birthday is in June, early June. And it's right when like the football magazine is, is due. So I said, I can't, you know, I can't commit yet. I got to see where I'm at with the magazine. And so Heather booked a flight for her and Sasha. And then, you know, maybe like a week before I was like, okay, I, it looks like I'm going to be good. And so then I booked a flight, but it was a different flight. And so I had to, they came a little earlier than me. I flew later. And, but luckily, um, Heather's sister and her husband and kids were arriving around when I was arriving. So they were going to give me a ride, like, you know, 40 minutes, share the car they were renting, drive me to the house. And so when I got there, I'd like stayed up really late getting a lot of shit done for the magazine. And I was like feeling like shit and sort of exhausted. And uh, when I was on the immigration line, I ran into this guy that I knew from high school. He was a good friend of mine when I was uh, in like junior high school but I hadn't really, I'd lost touch with him. And he was kind of like the cool guy. And I saw him and there he was with his uh, like beautiful, like looks like a model wife and his two daughters who were like 12 at the time. And uh, I was like, Hey man, what's up? You know? And he was like, Hey, and I was like, I don't know why it's sort of embarrassed <laughs> about this, but I was like super friendly to him. And he was kind of a standoffish, cool guy. And I, I don't know why I was just like being super friendly. It was like, I don't know, maybe a defense mechanism. Cause I was feeling so like shitty and, exhausted and uh not you know it's like going to your high school reunion and like you know your worst clothes and <laughs> put on your worst foot but you know it is what it is and so i was like kind of friendly but then like my line moved ahead and he kind of just gestured like dude you, you got to keep going and i was like all right great to see you and i just kind of took off and it was just kind of an embarrassing episode because i was like it's like again like going to your high school reunion and in, in like your frumpiest clothes and like putting a real bad uh impression out there and then, uh, so I get, so whatever. So I get to Mexico and I told Heather, I was like, I saw this guy, but it's kind of embarrassing and told her about it. 
but then like, I don't know, this is like five years later, six years later, we're uh, somehow came up and she was like, yeah, I was there. I remember his wife, she's wearing a hat. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You were not there. I told you about it when I got to Mexico because I was feeling kind of stupid about it. And, and she's like, no, I was there. And it, that shit just sent me through the roof. And then I was like, no, you weren't there. We, you know, explained the whole thing. And to this day, she believes that she was there, which I just know for a fact is not the case, which is not the fucking case. And, uh, and so I just like, please don't talk to me about this. So, like, I'm like, I like freak out. I'm like, don't talk to me about this. Cause it, cause to me, people are like, what's the big deal? Who cares if she thinks she was there? No, it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all for that particular experience. There's, there's, it's not important, but what is important is like, if you don't share a view of reality, then, you know, she could think any, that I did anything at that point. You know, if, if somebody's making up reality, that's dangerous, right? Like, it's like, she could say you did this or you didn't do this, or you were supposed to do that. I mean, it's, it's just freaks you out. Anyway, uh, we talked to some friends about it and they were like, well, maybe she's just so empathetic to you that she like put herself there. And like in her mind, she's not, I was like, okay, I'll buy that. I don't really care what the explanation is. I just want to acknowledge that she was not there because she wasn't. And I, for me, there's just a reality, like whether she agrees or I agree, whoever thinks what is reality. And I, there's no way I'm wrong about this. There's no way. Cause I just remember the whole thing very clearly, but in the infinitesimal possibility that I was somehow wrong about this, again, which I'm not. Either way, there's a factual, in my opinion, there's actually a factual truth to whether she was there with me or not uh, during that thing. And and by the way, we looked at like tickets and stuff, but it was so far, it was so much later, like I couldn't even find the records of it. And this question of whether reality exists sort of into, you know, like, is there just like, to me, it's absolutely there's a truth, whether someone's there or not. Like it's, it, to me, that's just fundamental. Like this either happened or it didn't. You know, it's not like, but there, what if everyone in the world, including me and her, all thinks that something else happened? Then does that become a fact? It's certainly going to become a historical fact. It's certainly going to show up in, in the historical record. But could, I mean, because everybody could be wrong, right? We could all be deceived. But it's like, I, I would sort of argue it's still a fact that it happened the other way, even though everybody, including me, thinks it. But it's like, but how does history exist except in people's memories? I mean, it doesn't even exist. So if it, if it all, exi if it exists completely one way in everybody's memory, then how could you say that it, it happened the other way? Like un under what it's like all of the, if you look at the tape, which is everyone's memory, everybody's tape, there's no independent tape. There's no video camera recording. But my contention is if there were a video camera recording, she would not have been there. Even if everybody's, you know, brain flawed brain video camera showed her there. And I think these kind of questions are important because you have people who really are like the judge cited a debunked claim that the virus doesn't stop the spread when it's like, dude, it doesn't fucking stop the spread. What are you talking about? But you have these people living in divided realities and it's, and, and I started to think like, well, what if there's some sort of quantum split where like there are people are living in the same, we can affect each other and communicate with each other, but we're li like simultaneously living separate realities. But I don't really buy that. But there's some physics, I think there's some uh, modern physics that kind of support sort of a quantum split possibility, you know, where it's not that there is no just absolute fact it's very disturbing to me because I'm just very much like so this happened and you and I may disagree and I could even be the person who's wrong. Not in that case, but in many, many cases. And yet, you know, there is still a factual, just fact of the matter. But 
you start to call that into question, then that's when I start to get red pill. That that's like the red pill that I'm having a hard time swallowing. I'll just say that. So I've just thought about that. All right, one last thing before I uh, cut this off, and pretty much like got rid of all these games. Like I don't play Wordle. I don't do Sparkle anymore. I don't do the Spelling Bee. I do Sudoku's out of a book, but I feel like the online sort of word games and stuff. I don't know. It's kind of an arbitrary line, but I feel like it's just sucking your energy and attention in a way that's uh, detrimental. Like it's like, first off, the New York Times owns Wordle now. So I just, that's just negative for me. I don't want to support them in any way, even though I don't pay for it. But there's just something about that. And, and when I've been in LA, like all these rich people are just kind of playing word games all the time. And it's like, yeah, I like that kind of stuff too, but it just seems like it's this massive distraction. So I kind of cut myself off from all that stuff. Um, haven't done the sporkles or anything else. Uh, but I did get sucked into the Immaculate Grid, that uh, the new baseball game. It's, it's kind of fun. Uh, but I'll probably ban that too in my life pretty soon. But I'm doing it for now. Anyway, I was kind of stumped on one a couple of days ago. And I basically gave up. But I was just curious like who the player would be that was on these two teams. Like The game involves like naming. It's like a grid three by three grid and like if something's in a row in a column it'll be like yankees are one row and braves are one column and you got to name a player that was on the yankees and braves at any point and so you know that's you're trying to rack your brain like who played for both teams well that one's easy but there's some that are really hard there's one that i just i can't remember what it was but i just kind of gave up i just can't think of it so i went to uh chat gpt because i figured like that's easier than like sort of guessing going to baseball reference and checking 20 different pages until i got it so I said, who's a player that played on both teams? And, I, oh, it was the Mariners and Orioles, I think. And it said Mike Boddicker played on these two teams. I think it was the Mariners and Orioles. And so I typed in Boddicker, and it was wrong. And I was like, the chap GBT, I was like, what the fuck? You just you blew my immaculate grid. And it was like, oh, yes, so sorry. Uh, I that is That is incorrect. He did not play. And I'm like, this is low stakes. So it doesn't matter, but that's just messed up that it just gave me the answer. If it doesn't know, it should say, I don't know, my, I'm not fed this data or it should give me the right answer. But to give me an answer that's wrong, that's messed up. And so I screenshotted and tweeted it because I want that to be in evidence. Like, I feel like people need to know, like, this thing is not, it is not reliable, at least not right now. And so uh, just be forewarned. And the other thing is the uh, open AI, the company that, owns ChatGPT and, and their its founder, um, its founder, Sam Altman, are being sued for scraping data illegally. And I think that's why Elon Musk did the rate limiting because he was trying to stop these uh, AI bots from scraping all the tweets. And A, you know, that's Twitter's data or your data, probably Twitter's, according to the terms of service. And then they're scraping all this other stuff, books and all these other, you know, inputs that obviously AI needs to to be a quality AI. And he's just like basically stealing all this stuff and he's getting sued, but there's so many billions of dollars behind him. And there's so many millions of people using chat GPT that he's, he's definitely going to get away with it. It's like Uber, you know, violated all the local taxi laws and whatever you, you know, think about Uber um, or the free market versus regulations and all that. That's a separate issue, but they did break the existing regulations and laws, but Uber still exists almost everywhere because it was just too big and ubiquitous and being used by so many people that it, it's already like its own ecosystem. And, and to disrupt that would be just a major, major thing. And so the 
they just don't end up enforcing these things. And I think this is kind of the model, just like build this stuff, steal what you need to steal. And then when you get busted, just be like, well, everyone uses it. So let's just settle this. So it's not a great, you know, it's definitely the ask forgiveness, not permission model, which is, is fine. I think on the individual level, but it's scale. It's not great. You know, you don't really, I don't really like Bill Gates putting these GMO mosquitoes into Florida. Now there's malaria in Florida for the first time in a long time. And I don't know if it's, there's a causal link that you can prove it, but I mean, just <laughs> this sort of large scale, Oh, let's just do this stuff. Let's block out the sun. There's a plan to somehow mitigate uh, global warming by blocking sun. What could go wrong? You know, I mean, these, it's just, uh, it's amazing what, what's being grabbed and allowed, not even allowed, just taken, you know, forgiveness, not permission. And I think we should not be granting forgiveness. I think, you know, when these things go wrong at scale, um, I think the punishment should be extremely harsh. And uh, I think a lot of people feel that way. And, uh, you know, Bill Gates is kind of, it's kind of like that lethal weapon when South African uh, <laughs> diplomats are doing like all this crazy criminal shit. And then he's like diplomatic immunity. And then Mel Gibson shoots the guy in the head or Danny Glover shoots the guy in the head. I can't remember which one of them did it, but basically that, you know, it's like they, they just think they're completely above the law and they're really pushing it to the limit. The Bill Gates is, and even this guy stealing all the, uh, I mean, this is a smaller problem, but it's not a small problem. I mean, these are, once it's in the AI, I mean, it's, it's unlocked. I mean, you're, I don't know if you can really ever, uh, the genie back in the bottle at that point. But anyway, this has gone on long enough. I was, I had some other things, but save it for next time.